BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zikazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Videos moderated by real people who review content before it's posted to the feed. I love the dance challenges. I love that it's Kids Safe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids. <laughs> Download the Zigazoo app today. I'm Newt Gingrich, representative from the 6th District of Georgia, House Republican Whip, and the General Chairman of GOPAC. What you're about to see is a speech I made to a congressional candidate training program in May of 1992. This speech is an effort to outline the necessary revolution to replace the welfare state, to create the basic principles of active citizen leadership in a way that candidates can use to develop a real partnership with the people of their district and with all of the American people so that both here in Washington and back home, we can be effective in making the kind of changes that will let us create jobs, provide safety from crime and drugs, and reform education and health so that together we can give our children and grandchildren the kind of future they deserve in an America that is free, prosperous, and safe. I hope you'll find this useful. It is our effort to outline what we think the key values and the key principles of the 1992 campaign are all about and to explain a way in which you as a candidate and your campaign can be effective in reaching out to the American people so that together in a partnership we really can work not just through the election but for the first 90 days of 1993 to truly pass the kind of legislation that will allow us to change America. Let me start in, in talking about the whole process of uh, campaigning and, and being a governing majority and how we put this together for 1992 and make the point to all of you, uh, which I hope you noticed, that before I sat down, I walked around the room and shook every hand. And I tried to find out for most of you where you were running, who you were running against, what your campaign was like, whether or not you had a primary, and in some cases, when the primary was. Uh, I start out by just pointing out that as a candidate, anytime you sit down between now and the election in a restaurant, 
without having shaken every hand in the restaurant, you failed. And every time you leave the restaurant without having gone back in the back and shaken every hand in the kitchen, you failed. And every time you walk in a bank to cash a check and you leave without having shaken every hand of the people waiting in line and every hand of the cashiers, you fail. Politics is about people. And what happens is candidates get in this rush where they run past 385 people standing in front of Walmart to get to their coffee, which has 11 people at it. Because in their mind, the 11 people in the coffee are political people, and therefore you should talk to them. And did you notice how many strangers there were over there doing weird things like shopping? So I just want to get in your head this habit that everywhere you go all the time, you are the candidate. You're the candidate 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be goofy about it. I do not recommend you stand next to your preacher every Sunday. <laughs> and that would, after a while, become a little obvious. But I do recommend you literally take this concept that you stop for gas, you get out, you walk in, you shake the hand of the people inside the store. And you, if you force yourself into that discipline, you will shake three, four, five thousand additional hands between now and Election Day. It's that big a difference. And you ought to genuinely listen to them. I mean, not just transactionally with your eyes glazed over while we're trying to figure out how to get home sooner. But the purpose of shaking hands and meeting people is to meet people. When you meet people, you need to listen to them. You need to find out something about their life. We'll come back to that. This year is, after all, going to be an amazingly wild year. Uh, audiences say to me, what do you think is going to happen? And I, I give them consistently the following answer. In a year where Jerry Brown can win the Connecticut primary, Ross Perot can consider running as for president. And Mount Pisgah, North Carolina, got 51 inches of snow in May. It is impossible to predict what's going to happen. So I assume that since we couldn't predict any of those three, why would you assume we can predict the rest of the year? This is like whitewater canoeing. It is going to be wild and woolly. You better get up every morning and read the paper and listen to the car radio on the way to your first speech, because something may have happened while you were asleep. And that's just reality. It's much bigger than the rest of us. In that context, let me say also as an aside, my recommendation to every Republican candidate is that they not take Perot head on. My recommendation is that the Perot voter is your voter. The Perot voter wants change. You want change. The Perot voter is tired of the welfare state. You're tired of the welfare state. The Perot voter is sick of the same old baloney from Washington. You're sick of the same old baloney from Washington. And it seems to me that there are three factions in this race. There is the Bush faction, which wants to change the Congress. There is the Perot faction, which wants to change Washington in general. And there is the Clinton faction, which wavers between wanting to be the candidate of change until he realizes that that would not make George Mitchell and Tom Foley very happy. I describe myself as a revolutionary. I don't necessarily recommend you use that word. Depends on how comfortable you are. But I mean it. I'm a historian by trade. I used to teach history. And I understand exactly what a revolutionary is. It is a person who wants a complete and thoroughgoing change. I want to replace the welfare state. I don't want to repair it. I don't want to reform it. I want to replace it. Now, that's a revolutionary goal. And I tell every audience, test it yourself. Imagine you watched your local television news for a week and nobody was killed because we had won the war on drugs and violent crime. That would be a revolutionary change in the quality of life.
Imagine you picked up the morning paper and your local school children had outscored the Germans and Japanese in math and science. That would be a revolutionary change in the quality of education. Every working, tax-paying American is a revolutionary in their values and their goals as compared to the welfare state. But we're not used to think like that. Now, we're lucky the Founding Fathers gave us a system where our revolution is fought with a political campaign, not a military campaign. We use ballots, not bullets. And our battlefield is purely political. Let me also say that I think there are three principles you need to apply to the process of active citizenship. And while you're a candidate, uh, one of my occasional disagreements with the consultants is I believe politics in the end has to be romantic and idealistic to work. I think to the degree that it is cynical, it undermines the core values of democracy. And so I start out with the idea that while you happen to be a candidate and I want you to win this time, you are a citizen. You're a citizen whether you win or lose. You're a citizen leader because you have the courage to stand up and speak, to go to meetings, to talk, and you're a citizen leader whether you win or lose. Let me just say to you that I'm going to give you a whole series of principles, but the first three I want to give you are very simple. I gave them originally to a high school group and decided they worked so well that I've kept them. There are three, three phrases. Think big, plan long, and work hard. First of all, think big. Peter Drucker got to that concept because he said when he interviewed Nobel Prize uh, winners, the only common characteristic was not that they were any smarter than non-Nobel Prize winners and not that they worked any harder. They asked bigger questions. They started with a bigger project. I didn't just run for the Congress, I ran to change America. And you ought to think about your own candidacy, your own being, your own commitment as a citizen. It's more than just let me win this election and then I'll go and collect a salary till I retire. It's a set of values and hopes and dreams, so think big. Second, plan long. You can do almost nothing in the short run. You can do amazing things in the long run. I worked with the U.S. Army starting in 1979, and over a 10-year period, we changed the whole system by which the Army designed its doctrine and its training, and the result was Panama and Iraq, a system that was so powerful and so successful that it ranks among the, the, the most historic one-sided victories uh, in world history. And it could not have been done in 1979. We didn't have the equipment, we didn't have the personnel, we didn't have the doctrine, we didn't have the training. And so I know that over a 10-year period, you can accomplish enormous things you can't accomplish in a week. And last, work hard. You have to work hard in the information age because all of the major problems in the information age are people problems. They're not hardware problems. And people problems are inv invariably time-consuming. As all of you who are either married, have children, or deal with other human beings for a living understand. I mean, the objective fact is, you start dealing with people in a positive, constructive way, you are going to spend a lot of time at it. Now, if you think big and you, and you plan long and you work hard, I think there's some principles that explain where we're at in 1992 and why we're frustrated. The first principle is that we are a majority in terms of popular vote, but we are not a majority in terms of power. And I believe unequivocally at a values level, if you take our values versus theirs, we are at least a 65% majority. And frankly, if we were more aggressive in reaching out to, major to minorities, I think we'd be somewhere between 70 and 75% majority. If every small businessman or woman in America who was black or Hispanic or Asian identified on a purely values basis with us, we'd be at close to 75%. The objective fact is, if you go back over the last uh, 24 years, this is, the, this is the percentage the left got for president in the last 24 years. It's sort of fascinating. 1968, Hubert Humphrey, 41%. 1970, 
1972, George McGovern, 39%. 1976, zero. Jimmy Carter ran as a Southern Baptist populist outsider who beat all the liberals. 1980, Carter was identified as a liberal. He got 41%. 1984, Walter Mondale promised to raise taxes. The country thought he was telling the truth. He got 41%. Uh, 1988, uh, Michael Dukakis did not use the word liberal until the middle of, of October. The country figured it out anyway. He got 46%. If everybody had voted, it's the first time in my lifetime, if everybody had voted, the Democratic vote would have gone down. He would have gotten 43% because we're now the party of the young, and the young tend to vote less often, so the more they vote, the bigger the voting pool, the better we do. Now just think of those numbers. 41, 39, 0, 41, 41, 46. And yet, when you look at, and I'd say, by the way, if you were to test, test values right this minute, you'd find that a truly identified liberal presidential candidate cannot get above 40% this year. And yet, if you look at the power structure of Washington, the power structure of New York City, the power structure of the legislature in Albany or Sacramento or Atlanta, Georgia, what you have is a country which has moved to the center right and a democratic power structure which is on the left. What exacerbates that is that we in the Republican Party, including the president, frankly, have failed to understand that we are in a civil war between an elite and a popular culture. I mean, why do you see the comedians make fun of George Bush almost with contempt? Because in their culture, among their friends, he has no standing. Now, why does he have no standing? He has no standing because if you are a Republican president, you cannot appease the left. You'll be destroyed. And yet, not having recognized that this is a cultural civil war, he doesn't systematically attack them. Now, Reagan understood that if you attack the left head on, but pick the battlefields intelligently, you will defeat them every time. That, that is, in a free society, the popular culture always, in the end, beats the elite culture. That's why the Jacksonians beat the Whigs. Because in a popular society, by definition, if I have 65% of the value with me in terms of popular vote, and you get 35% or less with you, I will win. It's just a matter of time. And yet, what happens is, because we fail to define what's going on, they're not afraid of us. They were afraid of Reagan. The first six years of the Reagan administration, Reagan, who had grown up in their technology, understood exactly how to reach out to the people. He used the right language and the right techniques. He never talked to the White House press corps. He talked to the American people. And the result was devastating. Uh, the best example was, go back and look at the videotape of the invasion of Grenada. The opening night, the national news media was beside itself. It was enraged. It then got the overnight polls. They were 81 to 7. By the second night, the national media was sort of neutral because they knew they couldn't sustain it. It was inconceivable to sustain it. And when the young man got off the airplane, kissed the ground, and said, thank God for the US, it was just gone. And the country said, OK, we understand. Bad guys, good guys, we're the good guys, shut up. And even Dan Rather was just stunned and couldn't say anything for days. It was one of the most horrible periods of his life. Now, <laughs> so what you've got to understand to start with, and, and you shouldn't go out and pick the fight, but you need to understand the fight that exists. Your local college professors, in large numbers, are not going to share your values. Your local reporters, in large numbers, are not going to share your values. 
And so you've got to be very patient, very calm. You've got to be willing to define what you're doing. Don't be hostile. Don't attack them. Just carry it back to first principles. I'll give you an example. I cite over and over, and I recommend to all of you, the Reader's Digest article, how the, how the Union stole the Big Apple. January Reader's Digest. If you haven't gotten it, go get it. Order reprints. And this article starts with, and Reader's Digest in January, starts with a $57,000 a year janitor who's in public school, whose union contract requires him to mop the floor three times a year. I always do this. Not three times a day, not three times a week, not three times a month, not three times a quarter. Every four months, no matter how he feels, <laughs> he has to mop the floor. Now, that's averaging, by the way, $19,000 a mopping. <laughs> now, the article, by the way, this is not some random anecdote. The Reader's Digest article cites the name of the school, the name of the janitor, and the name of the principal, and quotes the principal as saying, he does have to mop the floor, the cafeteria, once a week. We serve 25 meals a week in the cafeteria. Most of the week, my students are studying around the filth. And the union is opposed to parents and volunteers coming in and cleaning up the school voluntarily. And I say to groups, including the Atlanta Constitution Editorial Board this week, at $19,000 per mopping, you can't make the big cities work. You have to have a revolution to replace the welfare state because it is impossible to make the current structure work. It's too muscle-bound, it's too expensive, it's too inefficient, and its values are wrong. What you want to do is hire a janitor whose first goal is the quality of cleanliness of the school so the students and the teachers can have pride in what they're doing and can focus on getting their job done. Now that meant that he had to mop it seven times in a day and he had to recruit nine local volunteers. That's the right psychological attitude. And until you reestablish the idea that serving the citizen and serving the child and serving the teacher is the primary reason we hired you, and your procedural contract and your territorial rights are not why we're here. We are never going to compete in the world. And so I then say to my critics in the elite culture, if you want to defend $57,000 a year for three moppings a year, go for it. They just stop, because they can't possibly debate it. It's so far outside the average person's common sense that even they know it's not possible. Now, my point here is to drive at the notion you've got to very calmly, very clearly go back to first principles, because again and again and again, What's going to happen to you is that you're going to be, you're going to have a question thrown at you which is designed to basically say, why do you hate the poor? Why are you not doing this? Why are you not doing that? Or, given the following definition of reality, why are you against us? And unless you are prepared to redefine the question, you have a real problem. In that sense, notice what the president's trying to do in Los Angeles. We want to reform the big cities, not just prop up the disasters. We want to go to enterprise zones so private business creates real jobs that are permanent. What do our friends want to do? Our friends on the left want to go to bureaucratic jobs given out through government. Every time you see a big city mayor on television, what are you hearing? Washington should send me money so I can spend it. Not a bad deal if you're a politician. Please don't make me raise taxes. Just give me something to give away. What are we trying to say? We don't want to help 
Mayor Flynn's allies in the Boston bureaucracy. We want to help every poor person in Boston get a permanent job in a real business that may last a lifetime. Now that's a totally different model. And now the debate is over, which do you think is more helpful? That's what Jack Ham's trying to do with, with his HOPE project. How do we genuinely help poor people have a chance to manage and maybe even own their own property? And you know what the biggest fight is with? It is with the big city public housing bureaucracy because it is the end of their way of life. If all of a sudden poor people have a chance to manage their own project, you don't need the bureaucracy. Similar example, I'm passionately committed to education. And I've been saying to people, I have a standard test. You have, you have what is called the classroom and you have in it the teacher and the students. Then you have the layers of bureaucracy up through the front office of the school to the county, up from the county to a regional office, from the regional to the state, from the state to the federal. In that model, let me suggest to you that you could profitably walk through every education bureaucracy in America with this test. Prove to me that the job you are doing is more helpful to children learning than a teacher in a classroom or I'm going to replace you in the morning with a teacher in a classroom. And my guess is you could reduce the class sizes by 30 to 50% in this country and have much better taught classes that were much more disciplined with much more adult attention by simply shifting out of the current bureaucratic model BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Throughout history, there are clear moments that define our nation's path, and now you can own a piece of that history. I'm thrilled to announce the Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin from Legacy Precious Metals. My limited edition, one-ounce silver coin commemorates the historic victory in 1994 when the Republican Party, under my leadership, took control of Congress. The Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin also symbolizes the transformative political platform that led to landmark achievements like the overhaul of the welfare system and the Balanced Budget Act. This holiday season, give the gift of history. The Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin is more than an investment. It's a tribute to honest government and to America. Available to order right now by calling 866-484-4043. That's 866-484-4043 or order online at newtgingrichsilvercoin.com.
That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. Now, who are our opponents? The Democratic Party, I believe, and I would defend this anywhere in the country in a debate with any Democrat, is essentially a coalition of five factions. It is big city machines, unions, trial lawyers, uh, left-wing activists, and political incumbents everywhere in America. City council incumbents, county commission incumbents, uh, state legislator incumbents, congressional incumbents, people whose career is essentially politics. You think, those of you running against Democratic incumbents, think about their career, and I'll bet you in a lot of the cases, that is exactly the model of who you're running against. And so, you can always tell what they'll do. They walk into a room, and that's who's in the room. So the left-wing activists turn to the trial lawyers, who turn to uh, the union leaders, who turn to the big city machine members, and they all then turn to the elected incumbents, and together they define their version of reality. And that explains about 85% of the behavior of the Democratic Party in Congress. Now, in that framework, let me start and say to you, other than those five groups, everybody else in America is potentially your ally. The poorest person in your district living in public housing is potentially your ally. Everybody who is willing to reform the trial lawyer situation, including most lawyers, is your ally. Everybody out there who shares your values, who believes in hard work and physical safety, in reforming health care, in rethinking education. Every teacher who agrees that reducing class size and reducing red tape would be good is potentially your ally. I mean, the principle has to be that majorities are inclusive, not exclusive. That you want to reach out and you want to bring every possible person into your coalition. You want to isolate your opponent into their narrow network. And you want to say, look, I understand if these are your values. If you represent the bureaucrat who goes home at five and not the person who stays behind and lives in public housing, you may not be for me. But if you're the 600 people who are left behind when the government closes up at five, and you think you ought to be given the right to manage your project, you're for me. That's a very different model of behavior. And we're not totally used to it. I, mean, I, I remember Republicans, that we've been a minority party for so long, that it's very hard for us to act like a majority. So you have a very hard time simply going out and saying, hi, I'm a stranger, you're a stranger, let's meet each other, then we won't be strangers. Instead, Republicans clot in the corner. You know, all of you have seen this at a Republican gathering. Three new people arrive. The first question is, why are they here? If they say, we're here to join the party, the second question is, why weren't you here last year? And if they say, gee, I'd be willing to take a leadership role, you'd say, yeah, why weren't you here a decade ago? Instead, what we ought to be saying to people is, glad you came. Who else do you know we can go recruit? Of course we'll give you a title. What do you want to be? I mean, this is... <laughs> now, I believe as a majority, I want to read you what I think is the core vision statement for this campaign. And I'll explain it to you briefly. Because I think that in building our majority and being inclusive, there are some very specific steps we have to take. We want to turn anger into action by creating a partnership with the American people, both to elect an effective team committed to real change and to help that team impose those changes on Washington. The first 90 days of 1993 will be the initial payoff for our joint efforts and our partnership. Now, a couple key code words here. This is designed based on our understanding of how the American people feel today. The first is people are already angry. 
You do, I mean, I spent a decade trying to get across that the Congress was corrupt, the Congress had problems, that the Democrats are doing a terrible job. I don't need to do that anymore. I mean, Congress has collapsed through the floor. People know they're angry. The problem is they don't know what to do with their anger. And so we want to turn the anger into action. But we don't want to say to people, elect me and I'll solve everything. In the first place, it's not true. In the second place, they don't believe it. They've been through a generation of that stuff. You want to say the opposite. Changing America and saving your kids' future is going to require all of our effort. I'm going to need your help in Washington when I'm elected, and I'm going to need your help here at home. Because if we decentralize things and we return real authority to the community and we give you real opportunities to decide things here at home, you're going to have to be active. You're going to have to be active as a parent, active in your community, active as a citizen, active as a volunteer. You're going to have to light one of those thousand points of light yourself. There is no passive, ignorant democracy that works. A free society requires responsibility as well as rights. And so I want a real partnership. I'll be the elected partner, you be the voting partner. And I want your help both here at home, and I want your help in applying pressure to Washington. So if I get elected, I want you on the talk show, I want you writing letters to the editor, I want your good ideas, I want you putting pressure on other members of the Congress, I want you telling me when you see the bureaucracy fail, so that as partners together, we can genuinely change this country and save our children's future. So we turn the anger into action by creating a partnership with the American people. Then we communicate something else. One person can't change anything. This is where Ross Perot in the long run's a joke. This is not a country that gives itself up to dictators, even rich dictators. If you want under the American Constitution to affect anything, you have to have a team. And the frustration of the last 24 years has been that the country wants a presidential team in one direction and a congressional team in the opposite direction. And then says, now you guys work it out. You can't. Instead, you've got to decide on a team. And it has to be an effective team. And I think that's a very important part of where we have to be by October. That we are an effective team, a team, by the way, committed to real change. And we have to make the first 90 days count because I think that's all people are going to give us. And if they see us come up here and bog down in the same baloney and the same nonsense and the same bickering, we're dead. Now, in that framework, let me suggest to you that as you get them to be partners, there are four key words. Listen, learn, help, and lead. I cannot say this too strongly. In the information age, leadership starts by listening. You listen every day. You listen to every person. When you fly home, listen to the person next to you. When you're standing in line at McDonald's, listen to the person next to you. When you go to a cocktail party, listen to people. When you tour a business, listen to people. Very simple technique. Get them to tell you about what they know. You'd be amazed how interesting the conversations get. Everybody in America knows something you don't know. The trick is to find out what they're an expert at, what they've lived through, what they've experienced. Get them to start talking. And everybody in America is lonely enough that if they find somebody who will listen, they'll talk. When you truly listen to people, you're going to learn from them. You're going to learn an amazing amount. And when you listen and learn, you're going to be able to help them. You're going to have your own observations, your own insights, your own network of friends. Every citizen, if they truly believe of you that you'll listen to them, learn from them, and help them, they want you to be their leader. Because you've met all the tests they have. Jack Kemp said it brilliantly one day. He said they have to know that you care before they care that you know.
Very important concept, very un-Republican concept. Something the Democrats do very well. They may not know much, but they make sure you know they care. And then people figure, well, the little bit they know relates to me. Those Republicans know a lot more, but none of it's about me. They have to know that you care before they care that you know. Now, a lot of ways to start asking, opening people up. Ask people simple things. Do you have a problem? Do you need help? How can we maximize the choices in your life? Who ought to choose? What's happening in your neighborhood? What are you worried about? Did you see that article in the morning paper? I mean, just start the process of getting them going, and you'll be astonished how much they'll tell you. And in that process, you'll be astonished because you want to work back from the voter to you. What's happening in their life, in their neighborhood, in their job that you ought to know about, and then you tell them about your plan or your program or your solution. But you want to have almost a boutique effect. You tell me what you need, and then I'll tell you what I'm doing. Not the opposite. Let me tell you what I'm doing, and you figure out how you fit into it. Because you need them more than they need you. Now, in that framework, let me also say, I think it's important to be noisy. If you haven't read uh, Joe Gaylord's Flying Upside Down, you ought to read it. I think it is as good a book as there is about what's going on. And frankly, again, we're back to one of the weaknesses of the White House. It's not noisy in an effective, coherent, systematic way. Something, again, that Reagan was a genius at. He understood how to communicate with a megaphone. But you've got to think that through for yourself. And you've got to figure out how to be noisy in a creative way. One of the reasons we do the, uh, the Thursday night conference calls is, is to set up a pattern for being noisy, to begin to intrigue your local reporters with what, what is it you're doing. Now, you've listened to people. You've learned from them. You've helped them. You're in the process of leading them. You're being noisy. When I talk about a revolution, let me just suggest to you, and I think all of you know there's a, there's a very long backup paper to this, uh, called The Necessary Revolution, which was a speech on the House floor and then was a paper I gave the president. But I think there are four principles here, and the four principles matter because you can apply them everywhere in your district. The principles are simple. First, technology. Second, basic economic and management principles. Third, quality in the Deming model. And fourth, traditional American culture. Very briefly, first of all, technology. We do conference calls in part because it's cheaper than trying to fly all of you in every Thursday night. And it turns out we have telephones in late 20th century America. Start thinking about how can we be in education, in healthcare, in law and order, in government bureaucracy, how can we be pro-technology? How can we use the breakthroughs and the opportunities of the late 20th century to create a higher quality of service, a better healthcare, a, a better educational opportunity? less bureaucracy, more convenience, more consumer friendliness. What is it you could do with technology? And one of the ways you do that, by the way, is you go around your district and ask people, who are the technologically interesting people in your district? Let me, I'll guarantee you, most engineers and most scientists and most inventors in your district have never had a politician walk up and say, tell me about what you do and why it might be useful. Second, basic economic and management principles. I tell every audience, simple test. Imagine the 10 most important things you tell Boris Yeltsin if he called you and asked you how to make Russia more prosperous. Make the list of 10 up, and then imagine applying them to the post office or New York City government or the Healthcare Finance Administration. And that's the direction we're going to go in. Every business group I talk to understands instantly what I'm talking about. That we're talking about just applying here at home all the stuff we're telling Poland and Hungary and Czechoslovakia and Russia, but doing it for real.
BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I've always been a strong believer in the importance of investing wisely. That's why I've personally invested in Legacy Precious Metals. At Legacy Precious Metals, they're not leaving your financial future to chance. They're on a mission to help you secure your financial future post-retirement. In partnership with them, I'm thrilled to announce the launch of the Newt Gingrich contract with America Coin. This limited edition coin is made of one ounce of 99.99% fine silver, commemorating the historic moment when, against all odds, we balance the budget for the last time in U.S. history. This coin isn't just an investment. It's a piece of our nation's history. And now you can own it. As the holiday season approaches, it's the perfect gift. You can purchase yours today by calling 866-484-4043. That's 866-484-4043. Or order online at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. Third, quality in the model of Deming developed. Deming is a cultural figure, 92 years old, born in uh, uh, Cody, Wyoming. He taught the Japanese quality in 1950. Easy way to learn quality that fits your campaign. Go find out who's doing it in your district. You don't have to read Deming's book, which is frankly hard to read. You don't have to read my speeches about it. You go out and you start looking around your district, call your local college and say, or, or, or find out who are the Baldridge Award winners who have branches in your district. IBM, Cadillac, Millican, Motorola, and go to them. They have an obligation to teach people. And they're thrilled. The idea of a politician walking in and saying, tell me what you're doing. How does it work? What lessons have you learned? How has it changed you? And you start listening to these stories. In that setting, finally, let me just say that Traditional American culture is captured very easily. It is the concept of encouraging people to change their behavior by incentives. People came to America to seek a better life. We're promised in the Declaration of Independence that everyone has the right to pursue happiness. That's a dynamic model. Don't have the right to an entitlement. Don't have the right to a guarantee. You have the right to pursue. Martin Luther King Jr. gave a speech on having a dream, a dynamic visionary model. The Homestead Act, move west, stake out the land, improve it, and you can have it. Very lean model. They had one clerk per county. No government loans. Now imagine the modern welfare state version. First you take 15 hours at a college. Then you apply in 77 copies. Two years from now we'll let you know whether or not you've got to the final pool. Then we'll loan you the money to go west. You'll be visited weekly by an OSHA inspector to make sure that you're homesteading in the right way. And after five years, we may or may not approve it. 
totally different structure of behavior. Now, two examples I use. You have to decide for yourself if you want to use them. First, if you want to understand the difference between a bureaucratic culture and an American dynamic culture, look at the German example of speed limits. The German people have a contract, and everybody who's ever been to Europe has seen this. The German people have a contract with their politicians. They cannot impose a speed limit because they would obey it. Now, I want you to think about that in the American model. Literally, if the Bundestag imposed a 90-kilometer or 55-mile-an-hour speed limit, most Germans, 99% would start obeying within 20, 24 hours. And at the next election, they would wipe out that entire generation of politicians, and they would elect the no-speed limit party. Now, by contrast, let me suggest to you that the American response to the challenge of speed limits has been radically different. For most Americans, a speed limit is a benchmark of opportunity. <laughs> I'll test it with this audience. How many of you in the last week went higher than the posted number? Then raise your hand. Be honest for a second. All right, look around the room. We now know who was a chauffeur. <laughs> I mean, virtually every American in virtually every audience raises their hand. Why? Because we have two sets of laws in our head. We have the law. Nixon broke it, we kicked him out of office. Jim Wright broke it, we forced him to resign. Uh, murderers, rapists, drug dealers, bad people, that's the law. Then you have the law. All that junk somebody figured out that's dumb. And it's a routine American model. Almost every American has it in their head. They apply it most commonly to speed limits, but all sorts of red tape you don't quite read, all sorts of forms you sign without looking at them. You have a cost-benefit ratio in the back of your head. How likely am I to get caught? How expensive is it? How, how much do I gain if I don't do it? And it's routine. Now, why is this important? Two examples. Every high school student, I, every time I talk to every high school class, I say, you can test this out yourself. How many of you know, how many of you know somebody who cheats? Never ask them if they cheat themselves. Every hand goes up in every class, every time has for 20 years, every time I've asked it. You can go back home and test it. Now why? Because in the American culture, we have driven education out and replaced it with bureaucracy and red tape, and every young American knows that faced with a bureaucratic red tape environment, it is their duty to get around it. If you think I exaggerate, let me give you this test. You have never in your life seen a movie or a television series in which the detective hero at the key moment turns and says, yes, we could save her life, but that would violate regulation 212C. So I guess you better tell her parents she's gone. Instead, the standard American epic is, they may fire me, they may take away my pension, they may throw me in jail, but by God, we're gonna save that girl. The audience erupts with applause, it works out the way it's supposed to, once again, stupid rules were broken by our hero on behalf of a noble cause. Well, you know, kids who were on the beach all weekend and are faced with a tough chemistry test say to themselves, how would Clint Eastwood have dealt with this? <laughs> and their culture says to them, get it to work. Don't worry about the rules. Second example, and this is what made, part of what made me revolutionary. I was approached by a caseworker in Henry County, Georgia, who said, she was very upset because people on food stamps cheat and they sell the food stamps, which is illegal. And I said, of course they do, they're Americans. And she got very mad. She said, what are you talking about? I said, look, 
if you live in a free society and your government gives you a negotiable commodity which you conclude is of greater value to you at 70% of face value in cash rather than 100% in stamp, you know in your heart your government wants you to sell it. Because because no rational free government would ask its citizens to voluntarily act against their own best interest. That's dumb. Now, let's apply it in a bigger world. We had a program, which I recommend to all of you, called Earning by Learning. Dr. Mel Steely of West Georgia College can help you with it if you want to know more about it, or you can contact GOPAC or my congressional office. Simple one, poor children living in public housing, second and third grade, not going to learn how to read or write according to their teachers. We wanted an incentive that would motivate them to learn. We looked at traditional American values. We came up with a very unique incentive. We offered them cash. We had observed that in many parts of American society this seemed to work. Let me report to you first of all, not a single student no matter how poor they were, food stamps, single head of household, no books at home, no matter how poor they were, not a single student had a problem with the theoretical construct. Now, we offered them a very radical program. It was child labor and piecework. We said, we'll pay you $2 a book for every book you read. We did not pay them for process. We did not pay them for trying. We paid them for success. Now, we set it up under the 1,000 points of light. 49 adult volunteers, one adult paid $500 to hold the program together in five counties. We used public library books. They were free. That's why we have public libraries. First thing we did in the program was take the kids down and get them a library card. Kids brought the books in once a week. The adults, these are third grade, these are second and third grade books. We had a higher standard than many schools. You had to actually comprehend what you had read so you could answer questions. You couldn't just read the words. You had to know the story. What was the result? Well, I have to tell you, by the way, you want to know how you end up with the L.A. riots? We had second graders and third graders in Douglas County, Georgia, the only place that there was resistance. They said to us, literally, you're going to cheat and manipulate us, you'll get us to read, and then you won't pay us. Eight years of age, this is our reaction to authority. That's the level of cynicism and despair and lack of hope. That particular group we paid weekly, and we doubled the number of kids every week. We didn't say, trust us. We said, give us one week. If it doesn't work, if you don't have cash, don't ever come back. So they walked around the neighborhood, and they said, huh, I have cash. Now the kid said, I went in too. Why are you depriving me of this opportunity? <laughs> now, we had a couple things going for us. One was, and it's very important to understand this, one was money. But there was a second thing going for us. It's called the Hawthorne effect, after the famous Western Electric plant, uh, which was the gate management study of the 1920s. They learned at the Hawthorne plant that if you study people and make them feel important, it doesn't matter how you change their work environment, they'll do better. You turn the lights up, they'll do better. You turn the lights down, they'll do better. You put music on, they'll do better. You take music off, they'll do better. All they have to know is that they are unique and important and they matter. It's called the Hawthorne effect, the management. So we gave these kids two things. We gave them cash and we gave them the Hawthorne effect. They were special, they were unique. What were the results? 282 students, read 3,602 books. We paid them $7,204. Our top student was an eight-year-old girl in Villarica, Georgia, who read 83 books. She earned $166 in cash. Her dad took a day off of work to protect her. <laughs> Very important to think these things through. 
What was the effect? We accomplished three things simultaneously. First, we increased literacy. We had kids who jumped two grade levels in seven weeks. Because for the very first time in their life, they were reading for real. Reading to their parents, reading to their grandparents, reading to their relatives, reading to the church group, reading I mean, anybody who came near them. You know, you have to listen to me for the next hour. Second, yet we taught empowerment. There's a wonderful article about a, a nine-year-old girl in Noonan, Georgia, who bought her first sneakers with her own money. That was power. Third, we taught free enterprise. You do not have to be a pimp or a prostitute or a drug dealer to make money. Now, it's a very radical program, totally unregulated, designed from an incentive basis. I'm not even going to argue that it is the best program or the only program. I'm not going to suggest to you that we replace Title I funding, which is $6 billion, $100 million learning by learning, although I would point out to you as a theoretical proposition that last year had we paid $3 billion books worth $6 billion to poor children in America for having read 3 billion books, they probably would have learned more than under the current structure. But that's not the point of this story. The point of earning by learning is, first of all, any American can be a partner for the 21st century because you figure out how many dollars you want to spend, divide by two, that's the number of books you pay for. Just go do it. And today, in 10 states around the country, people are doing it with no structure, no bureaucracy. I make a speech, they call Mel Steely, he sends in the material. If they like it, they do it. If they don't like it, they don't do it. Highly inefficient, but extraordinarily effective. Second point, figure out your own version in healthcare, in welfare reform, in housing, in the environment. What would you do, which is an incentive-driven application of traditional American values in order to change behavior to get where you want to go? Because the point of earning by learning is not that it's the solution, but that it is an example of a radical replacement of a current model and a way of rethinking what we're doing. Now, if you take those models, technology, economic and management principles, quality in the Deming tradition, and traditional American culture, I want to suggest to you one radical idea that we have a chance to do this year. And that is to create what I would call the coalitions of the future. Politics today is dead. It is cynical. It is calculating. All of you spend your time with people who are already political activists, and everybody else wonders what you do in such a weird way on Saturday afternoon. Because they're all off doing something totally different. And you try to convince them to come help you, and they go, ooh, that's politics. What I want to suggest to you, and I want to give you three specific examples of what I would call the coalitions of the future. First. Try to network together every person in your district who has studied or is working on quality in their own business. And I'm going to suggest we call this quality workers for a quality America through quality government. Second, we need to figure out how to get everybody who believes in a better America through better technology. There is in every district in America engineers, scientists, inventors, entrepreneurs, workers, who know an immense amount about technology. They're all outside politics. The essence of the two cultures is simple. Those who know are inarticulate, and those who are articulate don't know anything. That if you've read enough to be articulate, you've read almost everything you've read is in arts and literature. And if you know enough science and math to, do, to know a lot, you're almost certainly totally inarticulate. And nobody bridges the gap. The result is scientists, engineers, technologists, technicians are outside the game. They don't do politics. Well, they have two problems with that. 
The legal system is anti-technology. The whole litigation process. We spend four times as much on lawsuits as we spend on basic R&D as a country. Second, the government is the largest single funder directly and indirectly of research in the world. Funds it directly, National Science Foundation, NASA, Department of Defense. Funds it indirectly, tax code. Are you allowed to write it off? Is there a tax credit? And so I would just suggest to you that even, I mean, that across your district, there are lots of people who understand technology, who can paint a brilliant picture of the America that could be, but who have no connection today to the political system. The third coalition of the future I want to suggest to you is the concept of health workers for health reform. Almost every, remember, this is the largest single unit of GNP today. Health, health costs are more than three times the size of the defense budget. That means somebody's earning money. That means in a lot of towns, the biggest single employment center is the hospital. We don't think about that as a political center. Let me give you two last quick sets of, of principles, and then we're done. But I, I do want to give you this, because I want you to be able to think these things through. When you approach a problem, whether it's a campaign problem or it is uh, a problem involving an issue, it's very important you try to solve it using a very specific hierarchy. This is what I would regard as the principle of real leadership and planning. First, what is your vision of what you're trying to do? What's your vision of what kind of congressman or congresswoman you'll be? What's your vision of America? What's your vision of government? If you don't have that thought out, if you can't write down in a page or less what it is you're trying to do, you need to think about it some more. Second, what are your strategies for implementing that vision? I've always been very open. One of the things I did that was very distasteful, when the checks all came out, I consciously scheduled an interview with every television station and every reporter who asked. I spent my whole life out in the open. I knew that it was technically a dumb thing to do because it maximized my exposure. But it was who I've been for my entire career because it's part of my vision of accountable, responsible self-government. And I just wasn't prepared to run and hide. And so you've got to decide, who are you? If you're going to be frugal, I gave up the car that I had and the policeman that, that was assigned to me. Because I really, I asked the three questions of the 90s. Is it truly necessary or just a convenience? If it's truly necessary, is this the least expensive way to do it since it's the American people's money and some family out there needs the money? And if it is necessary and it's the least expensive way to get it done, does it tend towards openness and reform and accountability? Or does it tend towards the same old system? Frankly, the car failed. So I now take a cab, or I bum a ride, or I drive myself. And so you start with, how do you put these together? And I frankly walk through, first, my vision of what we were doing, what my strategies were for getting there, which was to be a reform revolutionary movement. Third, what are your projects for implementing your strategy? Notice I gave you a specific project possibility. Let's do a breakfast on quality one morning during the convention. Link it together by satellite all across the country. Totally different than any political party in history. Now, that's a specific project. And a project is a simple thing. It is a building block, a definable, delegatable achievement. Please set up a breakfast over here. Contact every business in my district doing quality. See how many of them want to come and do a Dutch breakfast and invite the press. Very simple model. Specific building blocks. Last, what are your daily tactics? If you want to have an open campaign, you want to be one of the people, use a pickup truck, not a Mercedes. may sound obvious. Pat Buchanan decided he would be against foreign imports without looking at the Mercedes he was riding in. I mean, just it was a sign he was an amateur. 
And as a perfect, I mean, Bill Clinton would at least have bought, have bought an American car before he did the first press conference. So when you approach a problem, healthcare, environmental problem, recreation problem, whatever it is, what is your vision of what you want to accomplish? What are your strategies to accomplish it? Are there some projects you can define and delegate, building blocks? And then tactically, what are you going to do every day? Lastly, when you think about an issue, it fits into one of four zones. First, you have a wedge issue. That is, an issue which will drive your, your opponent away from the average voter. Checks for most challengers is a wedge issue. Uh, the post office would be for most challengers a wedge issue. I mean, Democrats, are, I mean, very few Americans believe that you ought to have patronage employees at the House post office selling cocaine. I mean, I've always said to people, this was the only profit-making post office in the United States. <laughs> so your opponent favors raising taxes. That's a wedge. That drives them away from the average voter. People got mad at us in 88 because we told the truth. Not a single issue we used against Dukakis was exaggerated or false. Not a single one. But they were so devastating. Remember I talked earlier about elite culture and popular culture? The elite culture hated the campaign because on every issue we appealed directly to the popular culture. And they just drove them crazy because they couldn't understand it. They couldn't get the message. Okay. Second, you want magnet issues. I believe magnet issues in 1992 are more important than wedge issues because I think people are already mad. You don't, you don't have to do much wedging. You just yell, liberal Democratic congressman. 38 years ago, oh, I got that one. But now, we, now you're going to say, why are you better? And a magnet's designed to draw the voter to you. Enterprise zones in the inner city. $5,000 tax credit for first-time home buyers. Works with young couples, works with home builders, works with people who sell uh, lumber, works with uh, folks who finance it, works with appliance salesmen. A lot of groups you can go to and say, is this a magnet? Mandatory recapture of child payments, child support. I mean, go to a divorce group and start talking about the concern you have that somebody can simply leave the state and it's legally impossible to catch them. And that you want to find a way to rebond parents to their children financially, even if you can't always do it emotionally. You'll suddenly find people coming your way. The third set are what I would call a shield. Example, your opponent jumps up and yells, we got to spend a lot more on the welfare state. If you really cared about the inner city, you'd pay another 20 billion. Now, you can decide that the way you block that is you tell them the story about the Reader's Digest article. And there are very few audiences left in America that once you explain the $57,000 janitor who mops three times a year, is gonna say, oh yeah, can we hire a bunch more? We don't have enough of those this week. And almost every audience in America is gonna agree with you if you say, I wanna thoroughly reform the big city bureaucracies before I send them a dime of your tax money? I want real reform in the big city tomorrow morning. How do you feel about that, Mr. Democrat? Now, you've totally shielded yourself from the charge that you don't care about the inner city. But you've done it on your terms, in your language, describing reality in a way that fits the values of your coalition. Lastly, there are turf issues. It's a very simple concept that Bob Teeter developed. There are times, frankly, when, and this is what the environment was in 1988 for the president. Dukakis wanted to attack the president on the, on the environment. They figured out, candidly, that if they were very strong on the coast of Florida and California and ran commercials about Boston Harbor, they didn't have to win on that issue, they just had to break even. That the act of a Republican being in the middle of the issue 
made a huge difference. Well, look at, look at Clinton's problem. Clinton, Clinton has been governor for 12 years of a state which ranks either 49th or 50th in the environment, depending on which group you talk to. Now, it's going to be fairly hard for him to emerge as the environmentalist candidate, although for the left-wing environmental groups, it will happen in the end because they're essentially socialists using the environment as an excuse. But for anybody whose concern is the environment, it's going to be very hard to look at Clinton's record in Arkansas and say, oh yeah, he's my guy. And all the president has to do is break even on the issue. A Republican who breaks even on the environment and breaks even on education and breaks even on health care and then wins on crime and, and wins on economic growth gets reelected. It's just over. And so you've got to look for what are the issues where just the act of you doing it is so audacious that it automatically puts you back in the game. You don't have to win on it, but you clutter their opportunity to beat you. So, let me just say in closing, you are campaigning in a year of unbelievable change. You are campaigning in a year where this country is very angry. It wants somebody who's going to be active, who's going to lead to real change, who's going to fight for real change. But it wants change that fits its values. And you have a country which is, I think, eager for a partnership if it can find political leaders willing to offer one. I think you have a country which is moving towards quality. You'll be astonished when you go out and find how many places in your district are already doing it. You have a country which knows it has to get into advanced technology. You have a country which understands it has to change all of its basic structures. You have a country which is scared about jobs because even if you have a job now, you're not sure how long you're going to have it. You're not sure how stable it is. And so you have a country that recognizes we have to change. And I think it is going to literally take a partnership of millions of Americans to get there. I don't think we're going to cure the inner city by some magic in Washington. I don't think we're going to reform education by some magic in Washington. I don't think you're going to invent the best health care in the world by some magic in Washington. Millions of people in each of these zones are going to have to actively go out, experiment, work, try, innovate, keep the parts that succeed, drop the parts that fail, do it again. We are literally back where we were in 1933 when Franklin Roosevelt said, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. And we simply have to have the same courage that they had to keep trying and keep trying and keep trying. And I am confident that by the end of the decade, if we have a majority, we will in fact have recreated the kind of dynamic America we want. I beg you to pledge to join in a 90-day first wave of real change. And I'll close with this honest statement. Your parents and grandparents changed the world. We defeated Germany, Italy, and Japan. We didn't colonize them. We freed them. We liberated them. We taught them democracy. We taught them free enterprise. Then we contained the Soviet Empire. We encouraged Latin America to go from dictatorship to democracy. We decolonized the entire third world at our insistence, pressuring the Europeans to withdraw. After a half century of some bloodshed and a lot of expense, the Soviet Empire collapsed. And we extended freedom for the largest zone ever in the history of the human race. And now we're teetering. The core keystone of freedom on the planet is the United States. We are the only country big enough, ethnically complex enough, and with the traditional cultural tradition that allows us to extend freedom everywhere. If we disintegrate, if we become a country of unemployed illiterates doing drugs and committing violence, 
There is nobody who's going to replace us. And the tragic spectacle of Yugoslavia should convince all of you. I mean, who would have thought three years ago that you could watch Europeans killing Europeans with the kind of brutality we see in Yugoslavia every day right now? This isn't just about the third world. This isn't just about dictatorships. This is about the permanent potential of humans in Los Angeles, in Baghdad, and in Belgrade to do unbelievably horrible things to each other in the absence of civilization and in the absence of leadership. Your campaigns are at the heart of whether or not we will have a revolution peacefully, which will replace the welfare state, create education, revitalize health care, reform the bureaucracy, reestablish economic growth, reclaim the inner cities, and launch into the 21st century a nation with the economic power, with the cultural vitality, to lead the entire human race to freedom. So I can say to you what I say to every audience. On your shoulders is not just your fate and your families and your neighborhoods and your communities. On your shoulders is not just America's fate. For this brief moment, for our generation, the fate of the human race, the chance of getting to freedom by the middle of the 21st century for all humans, is literally on your campaigns. If we win, if we are an effective team, if we implement real change and create a real revolution, I have no doubt that my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren live on a planet which is prosperous, safe, and free. Thank you to the University of West Georgia, Ingram Library Special Collections, and specifically the Catherine and Jeff Breedlove Political Collection. They provided us with digital copies of the GoPack tapes. You can learn more about the GoPack tapes on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howe. And our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich, and this is Newt's World. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids like yours, and all content is fully human moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds... It was shocking. I have to know, what were they thinking? 
backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning, it's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you. Because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just $348. With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free.